now in the side of Hashem. As you can see, this is the so-called border of Sykes Pico. Alhamdulillah, we don't recognize it and we will never recognize it. Inshallah, this is not the first border we will break. Inshallah, we will break other borders also, but we start with this, Inshallah. So Inshallah, if we walk, Inshallah, we cross the border. And we'll see that, Alhamdulillah, this used to be the Safavi army used to stand here. We used to stand here. This is the so-called border with the police and the, the people used to pass. Alhamdulillah, there's nobody now except the, the soldiers of Dawlatul Islam. So Alhamdulillah, Inshallah, we cross the border. The man in the 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 street believes that recently the Americans plotted to overthrow their government, and the evidence is strong. This is Radio Baghdad. You're here with your co-hosts. Rida, and instead of Amal, we have a special co-host today. His name is... Philip Proudfoot. Do you want to give an introduction, or should they just find out through the unfolding of this episode what your expertise are? Uh, my name is uh, Philip Proudfoot. I'm an academic specialist in humanitarian crises, war, um, development in the Middle East predominantly in Lebanon and, and, and Syria. Also, I'm the leader of the Northern Independence Party. <laughs> That's not relevant. <laughs> Philip, Philip, why don't you tell us what we just heard in the introduction to the episode? So we just saw an opening clip from, when was it, 2014? I think 16. No, I think it's 2014. May, I just say 15 as a compromise. <laughs> No, I'm okay. I'm pretty sure it's 2014. But it was a clip of Islamic State fighters ripping down a sand burn barrier separating Iraq from Syria. And they're all foreign fighters, right? And they're jubilant about the idea that finally these Islamic State fighters have brought to an end this thing called the Sykes-Pico Agreement. And that's what I understand to be the focus of this show is discussing what is the Sykes-Pico Agreement and were they actually correct? Yes, exactly. Today, this podcast will go beyond what no other podcast has gone. We'll be discrediting ISIS. We'll be seeing what Sykes-Pico is and whether, discussing towards the end, whether what the Islamic State did really is the first time that Sykes-Pico was sort of but I think dismantled. It, I think we should first give a very like cursory like one or two sentences to, as to what the Sykes-Pico agreement is. Sykes-Pico is a treaty or an agreement done in secret between two diplomats. One is the British Mark Sykes and the other is the French diplomat George Picot. Maybe you can start by explaining... The a treaty to do what? You just said a treaty. Oh, that's true, yes. Though. It's a treaty to divide the Ottoman territories that were on the Eastern Mediterranean. So that's what we today know as Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, what else is it? And Palestine. Palestine, also... Saudi? It's, it's Future not, Saudi. Arabia. Future Saudi, Arabia. but there's the states like the UAE and Qatar. Yeah. They're called, there's something like, they have a name that's related to the base treaty, because mm-hmm. they are only named after the fact that they've been created due to a treaty with uh, Britain. Any case. But why are we talking about this on a podcast about conspiracies? Because this treaty was made in secret 
and it was made in secret during a very critical time when these territories which were previously Ottoman uh, regions so under the control of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire based in Istanbul and then suddenly these countries became con- these areas became countries but isn't also the point that this is a another example of a of a of a conspiracy in the sense of an act in the sense of the actual word conspiracy that is you know a secret agreement so it's an actually existing real conspiracy that shaped the modern middle east yes yeah, so we know why. about this and we it's, know about it it's we not, know that it's, it's not a conspiracy no we know it's that it was done in secret it was actually revealed eventually um after one of the partners fell out that was russia and the new Russia was a partner in the Sykes Pico agreement. Initially, yes. So uh, Russia was one uh, member or one entity uh, party to the agreement, and they were gonna control parts of Turkey close to the Russian borders. And when Lenin, I think it was Trotsky who eventually. No, it was Lenin. Lenin, was Lenin. Lenin um, eventually released the documents as a, a evidence of the imperialist nature of the First World War. And sadly, as we find out, people after they found out, they just completely ignored this evidence and nothing happened. Sort of like Don't Look Up. I was thinking about that. We just watched Don't Look Up last night. Lenin was saying, everyone, everyone, there's this being this huge secret agreement to divide up the Middle East and exploit it as an imperialist territory. And everyone was like, meh. So maybe Don't Look Up wasn't, you know, such a a revelatory film about contemporary millets. Yeah, it's not about climate change. It's actually about how the French and the British sought to divide and conquer the Middle East and how the Arabs knew about it, but then did nothing to stop yeah. it. Yeah, I think it's also good to point out that, you know, the thing about Sykes-Picot is that, is that while it might seem that we're talking about a really relatively little-known, insignificant piece of bureaucratic treaty-making in the Middle East, people are obsessed from with it. From 100 years ago. People are, from 100 years ago. But in the Middle East, everyone's obsessed with it. That's why. You learn that's it in why. school. You know, as in like school, one yeah. of the f- it's basically, I think, in, in the last year of school, in Lebanon at least, you learn about the history of Lebanon from the First World War. And then there's an entire chapter on Sykes-Picot. Okay, so what, so what then? How are we going to unpack this? What are we going to do in this episode, Redder? We're going to start by giving sort of a background information on who Mark Sykes is and who George Picot is. Two diplomats with a fruity background that shows the extent to which amateurs were really defining things way beyond their levels of knowledge. A fruity ex- background? That sounds yeah. a little bit homophobic. No, not in a homophobic way. They're just, not you know, like weird. Fruity as in posh. Yeah, posh and sort of weird and bizarre. They're eccentric. Ignorant and posh. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll move on to more exciting characters like T. Lawrence. And uh, and we'll also get to know some Arabs who were involved in negotiations, but unfortunately did not get out much out of these deliberations. Before we bring in our characters, it is perhaps helpful to explain where the Middle East was at this point in time. Now, the areas we will be talking about shortly were not countries at the time. In 1914, the Ottoman Empire consisted of various governorates called wilayat in Arabic, all of which had varying degrees of independence or subjugation from the Ottoman center of power in Istanbul. The governorates were ruled over by men appointed by the Ottoman Sultan and were given the right to collect taxes. Most Arabs then were subjects of the Ottoman Empire. At this point in time, 
the Ottoman Empire was experiencing two important events that makes it relevant for Sykes-Picot. The first was being on the verge of bankruptcy from massive loans provided to the government from the French and the British. Now, the intention of this loan was to modernize the states and the military. Another attempt to modernize was called Turkification, which laid the emphasis on Turkish language and Turkish customs in all state policy, hence alienating a lot of Arab subjects who, in response, or at least partly in response, started a nascent Arabist nationalist movement. This is the context by which the areas we'll be talking about transformed within six years from regions of the Ottoman Empire into more or less independent mandates of the French and the British. The man in the street, the man in the street believed that recently the Americans plotted to overthrow their government. The um, but strong. maybe we should start with Mr. Mark Sykes. Do you think Mark Sykes is the British one or the French one? Why are you asking me? I'm a doctor of Middle East anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mark Sykes is the British... Oh, is he? <laughs> <laughs> he... It was the MP for Hull. He was elected in 1911, so three years before the First World War. He presented himself as a Middle East expert by pointing out the fact that he traveled loads to Algeria and Egypt. And I was reading a bit more about this last time. And it turns out in, his, um, in the books, they continuously say, oh, he left to Jerusalem and Egypt whenever his parents were fighting or to escape the fact that his parents were constantly on the verge of fighting. Which is just a, such a strange background story that I don't. Had. I don't understand. One of his parents went, or both of them went, or he he went. So his parents took him quite often when they were young as family holidays, and he would go back whenever his parents were like fighting as like an what? escape from. What like when he was like what? Like, he was like twenty five. Yeah, in his undergraduate years and. What? So he'd come home from university and his parents were fighting. Like that's it. I'm so going now to, I'm going to Egypt. I'm going to Cairo. All right. Um. But, I mean, that served him well because he became the UK government's uh, expert on Oriental matters. and he was That's up... good enough. Good yeah, it's good enough. Yeah. His mom's name is, like, insane because it's not posh. It's called just Lady Jessica. Oh, yeah. Just reminds me of... Uh, the um, character in from June. June. Where, the... where in June everyone <laughs> has, like... a medieval like... princess but, with magical But you should powers. be careful. I, I heard that was also for Orientalist reasons. So, you know, all of the, all, all of the bad characters have weird Oriental names, but all of the heroes are called Paul. And Jessica. Oh, they ended up divorcing, apparently, his parents. Um, well, probably, if he had to go to bloody Cairo to get away from them. Yes. Um, and also, I think his mum was the alcoholic, not his dad. His dad was just eccentric. Um, also was quite an anti-Semite, uh, for some reason. It's like highlighted in most of... Uh, most of the British upper class were anti-Semitic. Yeah, but I, for some reason, I think because he's maybe close to the history of the establishment of the state of Israel, it's mentioned quite a lot in his biographies. Mm. Um, Monsieur Picot, on the other hand, he does have some career experience in the Middle East. Uh, he was positioned in Lebanon, in the Lebanese embassy. Prior to the First World War, he served in the Lebanese, in the French embassy in Lebanon. And he was quite an exciting, an excited man because he had a few plans to do a few things in Lebanon before he left. And one of the main things he did was he convinced the Greek nationalists to start supplying 
Lebanese Christians with armed supplies so that they would revolt against the Ottomans. But when World the War... The French love doing that shit. Yeah, but I mean, imagine like Mount Lebanon was a very, very small area filled with like peasants that are like, okay, would never win a war but did his plan? Did his plan succeed? Did no, because arms? when the First World War happened, he just left and left all the documents and the Ottomans discovered... What documents? documents? I thought he was giving them guns. Well, no, the documents like agreeing with the Greeks to supply them with guns. Ah, okay. Um, and when it was revealed... All these people were just hanged in the downtown in Beirut. So he's not the reason why the Lebanese Christians are so powerful. No, no, no. Or no, were no. powerful. Or no, he's probably powerful. part of the reason why they weren't as powerful as they could have been. Because they probably, a lot of them oh, just well, it's left. Oh, it's a good thing he fucked up there. So he's a good man, actually. Uh, just kidding. Um, we love <laughs> and respect minorities in the Middle East. Are they a minority in Lebanon? That's controversial. They are a minority say. even during the <laughs> 1932 <laughs> census. Um, so yeah, so this man who caused the massacre by mistake and another man who was escaping his parents' divorce through the Orient came up together and wrote a treaty on how to divide the Middle East where the Ottoman Empire were it to fall or to be defeated after World War One. And there were many reasons why these two countries were interested in the Middle East. The first for the British was that it was basically the only thing stopping them between Europe and India. They already had Persia, they had India, they had the land after India, like Pakistan and Afghanistan. The only thing stopping them was Iraq, basically, and the Gulf. And then they discovered that they need oil to run their navy. And so they knew there was oil in Mosul at that point. They had to have it. And then for the rest, they were like, you know what, if we invest the French, we can give them the shitty areas, like... Lebanon and Syria. Because they didn't have natural resources. Still don't have any natural resources. Lebanon might have gas, but yeah. But why did the French accept that then? Well, they were like, oh, well, we like Lebanon because it's a bit like France. That's what people say, but I think it's because the French owned lots of utility companies Mm. and they had some trade investments with the Lebanese in Mount Lebanon. But how would would the British, if if they found oil... British how would they get the oil out because they would need a port I guess they oh because they use the port in Palestine well there's a there's they can use the port in Palestine that was one plan yes and Haifa Mm. um and also they could they weren't like against developing commercial relations with the Lebanese and eventually we'll find that they used actually the port of Beirut rather than the port or the port of maybe Tripoli yeah um and I think you know like people it's also important to point out that Britain did actually invade Lebanon. People don't think Britain invaded Lebanon. It invaded Lebanon so much that there is still a street in Beirut named after Allenby. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were only there. What were Wait, they there? No, 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 not just Allenby. Allen- Spears, the, Spears, as well. Spears as well. But, cause they, but, but I think Britain invaded Lebanon for like, what, like six months or something? Yeah. No time. If the but first just year, enough time to the name first two year streets. after the First World War. Just enough time to name two streets after two British generals. Yeah. Let's name the street where Barber is after them. <laughs> That would get people to respect No them. one will know what Barbar is. It's a, sh- they, it's a shawarma shop in Beirut that makes very good shawarma. Now, okay, let's take up for a second because we discussed a lot of things. We have Monsieur Picot on behalf of the French, Mr. Sykes on behalf of the English. They get together. They agree on how to divide the land. Arabs are not really involved in this. But they need the Arabs. They need to have the Arabs revolt and basically remove the yoke of Ottoman rule in the midst of the First World War, because these areas are all under um, 
Arab control, uh, Ottoman, Ottoman control. control. The Ottomans are aligned with the Germans. The Ottomans that's are aligned with the Germans. The and the British are afraid to the level of paranoia of a global jihad. You have to remember Britain was in control of India, where there's a great Muslim population. Pakistan, same thing. Not sure where else they were, where there was a huge Muslim population. But they were terrified of the idea of a global jihad. A problem that they had actually suffered from in the 19th century. And so they were afraid of that happening again. And so they come up with the brilliant plan to create an Islamic jihad of their own. A very British jihad. And so they reach out to a very nice guy. A guy that's, you know, reputable, has a good reputation. And whose word is can carry it has you know depth it has weight in the arab world do you know who they reach out to philip who sharif hussain of mecca oh. do you know anything about sharif hussain of mecca well i do but you should probably tell the listeners so hussain is an ottoman bureaucrat at the time when the british reach out to him he actually works for the ottomans he was about to get fired but his son found out that he was about to get fired and so he told his dad Hey, maybe we should reach out to the English. They're fighting with the Ottomans. We should get you know in touch with them, see what's up. Maybe then you could come up with a post for after you get disposed by the Ottomans. So he reaches out to the English who first refuse him and then contact him again in the midst of the First World War. And they're like, what do you think about this? Should we start a jihad? Now, Hussein is a very humble man. He's also a very... What do you call a man with no ambition? Um, a very non-ambitious man. And he's quite scared of the idea of jihad. So he starts corresponding with the British... Uh, I think it's potentially this guy's the Viceroy of India or some sort of, consul- some sort of consulate for the British Empire named Henry McMahon. Now, Henry McMahon is not really important except he's the person who corresponds with Sh- Sharif Hussain to convince him to have an Arab revolt against the Ottoman on behalf of the British, also paid for and supplied with arms by the British. But in order to conduct this revolt, he has to agree on which countries or which areas does Sharif Hussain get to control after he wins his revolt. Now, Hussein has this ambition of being the king of Arabs after, afterwards, after he wins his revolt. And the British are like, no, 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 no. Here's what's going to happen. You can take control of the Arabian Peninsula. They didn't know there was oil there. So they were like, you can take control of the Arabian Peninsula. You're the Sharif of Mecca, so which is in the Arabian Peninsula. So you can probably just stay there. You can stick there. That's fine. You can stay there. It's just like a religious city. It's not really important to the British. You can also have potentially the area that's now Jordan. But parts of Iraq is going to have to be ours. And also parts of Lebanon, we're going to have to give that to the French. Because, you know, Levant is really French at that point. Those were the arguments they were making. And then they're like, what about Palestine? Palestine has pretty important Islamic monuments or whatever. And the British are like, no, 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 no. Palestine goes under international rule. God knows what that means. And Hussein is at first like alarmed by the confusion and the ambiguity. And so then they just give him more money and he agrees. But Hussein is too old to lead this revolt. So he enlists his son, who's known by the name of Faisal. 
And Faisal is joined by an even more colorful character. Do you want to guess who that is? Um, I'm just guessing, but is it T. Lawrence? Sheriff Ali! So long as the Arabs fight tribe against tribe, so long will they be a little people, a silly people, greedy, barbarous, and cruel, as you are. <laughs> T. Lawrence is sent by the British to Mecca in the area of Hijaz in the Arabian Peninsula to help Sharif Hussain and his son Faisal conduct a very British jihad from the Arabian Peninsula to take over... My very British jihad, what do you mean? Attacking Ottoman trains again Attacking again. Ottoman trains, basically. It's, so, it's, such a, it's such an enjoyable British activity, attacking Ottoman trains. I told you, when I lived in, uh, when I lived in Jordan, you could uh, pay to go on a simulated um, attack of an Ottoman train where you ride at it on horseback and you try and attack this, this train. Or you, I think you can also ride on the train and be attacked. I don't know if like there's a market for, for Turks who want to do that, maybe. Yeah. I mean, the Turkish uh, tourists would be insulted by having their infrastructure attack. Get on an armoured train and then get attacked by British pretending to be leading an Arab revolt in Jordan. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. But the, you know why do you know why they attack the trains though? Uh because the trains are the major ways of moving across the deserts. Yes, that's why they want if you attack the trains you hurt the Ottomans. But there's a reason why Sharif Hussain really wanted it as well. Sharif Hussain had all these connections with the local tribes who's who made their money by protecting and I'm doing air quotes that you can't see travelers from the Middle East into Medina. And so if you had trains, there won't be anyone attacking you. And so you don't need to be protected. And so this tribal economy of like either a attacking tourists coming into the Medina or protecting them. Ah, for people going on Hajj. They yeah, make, going on so, Hajj. So the, the tribes would attack people going on Hajj to make money. Yes. And, Sh- and Sharif Hussein didn't like the train because it shortcut that ability to that make entire money. economy of either the attacking com- them or defending them from yeah, being attacked, yeah, 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 like border raiding and stuff like that. Exactly. You see, you see that li- literally everywhere. Um, it's not there's nothing unique about that in, in Arabia. Yes, but this always is- good to do a de-exoticizing point. Nothing unique about this time. No, of thing. course there's nothing exo- but it it's still a kind of strange economy based on the fact that this guy who's in charge of Mecca. In charge of the Hajj. Yeah, but it's also it's has just, economic interest in reli- not facilitating re- travel to his city. But it's a religious, it's a religious pilgrimage, which means you have a constant flow of people. But you also would have a constant flow of people across other national borders for a diversity of reasons, where you'd have the same sort of. Ba- it's just banditry. It's banditry. Yeah. But the train cuts through that. We had a German-designed Ottoman-built train, and the British and this guy Sharif Hussain wanted it gone. Um, one of the first instances of the Europeans destroying our beautiful infrastructure. Well, if it was German designed, they also built it. It was just Britain destroying German stuff that happened to be in Arabia. <laughs> That's true. Um, do you want to tell us more about T. Lawrence? What do you want to know about him? Where is he from in the UK? I'm not sure. From the south, obviously. He's Sussex? Some, yes. Is he from Sussex or somewhere like that? I think that? Devon. Wasn't he in Devon? In Devon. The I mean, you should look that up if this is supposed to be an informative podcast. Yeah, but it's a storytelling podcast. T.T. Lawrence is... Um, I mean, obviously people know him from the film Lawrence of Arabia. 
He is a British, a desert-loving Englishman who wrote a book about his time in the Middle East called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I think he was originally an archaeologist. He's Welsh. He's Welsh. Yeah, he's born in Tremadog, Carnarvonshire. Yeah, but I think I think he's Welsh in the same way that Gertrude Bell is a Geordie. Yeah, I guess so. He's he's just posh. Posh is like a different region in the UK. It's like <laughs> it's like a region that exists outside of space time. If you're posh, you're just posh. But I don't think he was that. He was born out of wedlock as well, of course. Which makes him an outsider, and he's gay, so he's like. Well, it's not. Con- it's not confirmed. There's a lot of debate, but um. obviously, the seven pillars of wisdom begins with him saying something like, "In the desert, the men slake their thirst with other men," which sounds to me pretty gay. What but is it actually slake? T. Lawrence was, you know, he 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 follows in this like. Well, he was an archaeologist, wasn't he? Yes, uh, and he, he was. Studied... But he was also using archaeology as a cover to do spying. Yeah, I mean, which his... is what they all did. Which is what they all did. I mean, to be fair to him, he did archaeology, and then he was recruited into a very boring office job in Cairo in the Arab Bureau. So his first job was to write like when the war started. His job was to basically write false newspapers in Arabic by the British. Was he writing it in Arabic? I mean, that's presumably Okay, yes. so I, I bet absolutely nobody believed anything he was writing because I'm sure T. Lawrence was following in the grand tradition of which I am part, which is British people pretending that they can speak Arabic. <laughs> but regardless, they were running an entire sort of psyop from Cairo, whereby they were writing newspaper articles from the perspective of the British to the um, Egyptians who were under the control of the um, British at that point. And in 1916, his two brothers die, and he feels inspired to join action, to join the action. And he decides to go to the Arabian Peninsula, where the Arab revolt is bound to take place, to help with that. And that was supposed to be two weeks or sort of, I think in the movie, it's like six weeks or something. And he stays there for the remainder of the war. Now, the really important thing that T. Lawrence ended up doing was sort of pushing Faisal and Faisal's forces to take over the port of Aqaba. The port of Aqaba is in Jordan and it was sort of a tactical area for the Ottomans that was really hard to take over by sea. All of the defenses were pointed to the sea and so T. Lawrence figured out a way to attack from behind through the desert coming Mm -hmm. in from the Arabian Peninsula and taking over Aqaba. For this I think he was given... For this, I think he was recommended to be part of the what is it, the Legion of the British. When I when I lived in when I lived in uh, in Jordan, I went to Aqaba. There's really nothing there. <laughs> is it just like a port city? Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know what the the weirdest thing about about Aqaba that, that when I was there is that they have a a a Rovers Return themed pub, and Rovers Return is a fictional pub in the UK uh U- UK soap opera Emmerdale. They have a pub themed and named after a pub from a British soap opera. And this is T. Lawrence's And that's impact. Jordanian culture. <laughs> <laughs> Just like it's a very, misunderstood uh, absorption it's, it's of British very culture. But they do, but Aqaba does have a duty free so you can buy Is there no cheap. like spa stuff in Aqaba? No, you're thinking of the Dead Sea. Yeah. Which maybe. is much further further so wait, north. Aqaba leads out to the Mediterranean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you no, not to the Mediterranean. It's across the uh, what's it called, the Red Sea. 
Yeah, so why can't you just swim in the Red Sea? You can, you can. There is okay. there are some beach resorts. Yeah. Okay, okay. You can see Egypt and you can see Israel from there. And that's why Aqaba is important, because it led to other areas controlled by the Ottomans and it defended mm. Egypt as well. Mm. So when the British were able to take over Aqaba, it made it much easier for them to then take over Palestine and then eventually Syria. Mm. Even though that wasn't part of T.E. Lawrence's or Faisal's mission, their mission was to take over the Arabian Peninsula, maybe bits of southern Jordan, but not Aqaba. He was more successful than his original mandate was, basically. You should, what... you should hear play the YouTube clip from um, from uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which is just a mash together of them going, Aqaba, Aqaba, to Aqaba, Aqaba. Akuba. I mean, Akuba. this episode will end with uh, all the compilation of him saying English, English, English. <laughs> Do you know the story about um, about Rory Stewart, who's like the modern day version of T, or fancies himself as a modern day version of T. Lawrence, where apparently he, when he was doing his like dress up uh, uh, and walking across Afghanistan, he was walking into a village that was being assaulted, I think, by the Americans. And some Afghani guy comes running out and looks at him and says, and, and says to him, you're Arab, right? And he, I think he was speaking Pashto, presumably. But for some reason, the story said, oh, he says, you're Arab, right? And then he pulls down his, his, his like, uh, his, 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 a, pants. his, his, <laughs> pulls down his head, headgear and says, no, English. <laughs> <laughs> He does look. He does really look Arab in that. Um, Who? In that. Who? Picture. Rory Stewart. In that picture, he looks Absolutely like he hasn't not. washed his face in a no. while, so he looks even English. <laughs> what a pillock. Now you might ask. Okay, we hear that. Okay, we have T. Lawrence, who has helped the British take over Aqaba. He's sort of on Faisal's side, and he eventually is recommending uh, Faisal's point of view and his right to rule over Arabia after the war finishes. Aqaba! So this is where our story ends for this episode. After secretly agreeing to split up the areas comprising the Middle East with the French, the British sent arms, money, and T.A. Lawrence to support the Arab revolt in Hejaz. The Arab revolt largely succeeded, helping the British secure their control of Egypt, which was no longer vulnerable to attacks from the Ottoman outpost of Aqaba. In the next episode coming next week, We'll be discussing another British explorer called Gertrude Bell. Her story relates to Iraq rather than the Arabian Peninsula and the Levant. We'll also wrap up this arc of our episode with a discussion on the impact of Sykes-Picot on today's Middle East. Thank you for listening. This is Radio Baghdad.